Well, this weekend, I want to talk a little bit about conflict, the good and the bad, okay? I'm not trying to foster any conflict here, but I think it's important for us to understand something that is very much a part of our lives, amen? And the text that I want to focus on is found in Numbers chapter 16 and 17, and this, in these two chapters are recorded the rebellion of Korah, and this marked a really low point in the nascent history of Israel, and at the same time, it presents to us a very interesting study on leadership, societal structures, and of course, on conflicts and how to resolve these conflicts. Now, as a background, I want to give you a few highlights from um, number 16 and kind of like give you a few dots and then you can join the lines together and that will give you a bit of a coherent picture of what is happening in these two chapters. I want to strongly encourage you at the end of the service to go back and take a read through these two chapters again because I believe you get a lot more of a fresh insight or a fresh perspective of how you would read into what is happening uh, in these chapters. But I want to begin by looking at verses 1 to verses 3 of Numbers chapter 16. And this is the start or the context of this rebellion. And it says, Now Korah, the son of Ezar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Datham and Abiram, the sons of Iliad, and on the sons of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men, and they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation, men of renown. And they gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You take too much upon yourselves, for all the congregation is holy, all, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord? Now, for a start, I want for us to observe that this descent that is happening in number 16 is quite different from the other incidents that happened in the history of Israel as they exited out of Egypt. In times past, they would complain about the lack of food or water. They commit idolatry. They would make different various complaints and all. But in this case, this is the first time where there is a specific attack on the leadership of Moses and Aaron. This was a rebellion. This was an insurrection. And the accusation that was being brought against Aaron and against Moses was that they were keeping positions of authority and leadership amongst themselves within their own family. This is akin to an accusation of nepotism, of control, and of self-elevated authoritarian regime that this family was trying to institute over the whole nation of Israel. Moses' response to this was to fall on his face and to cry out to God for God to exonerate himself. And he wanted God to be the one to draw a distinction, to show up and show the nation that he is the one that God has chosen. He's not put words into God's mouth, right? And so the instruction was given that the next day, every one of these men were to bring a censer before the Lord and God would then indicate who are the ones that he has chosen. Now, before the day is over, what happened is that a second accusation was then leveled against Moses. And this is found in verse 12 to verse 14. And I want to read these three verses. And Moses sent to call Datham and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, but they said, we will not come up. That's amazing, okay? And that's outright defiance. And, and then they go on and they say this about the Moses. He says, is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, that you should keep acting like a prince over us. Notice that, acting like a prince over us. Moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. Now, these words of Dathan and Abiram, if I could say this, were calculated to pierce Moses in the most raw parts of his person. 
in referencing Moses as acting like a prince, let's not forget that there was a time when Moses was the prince, amen, a prince of Egypt. And, you know, his upbringing in Pharaoh's court, you know, there were all these things that they were bringing up. They were accusing Moses of colluding to deceive Israel so that he could take them out from Egypt and and become the Lord over his own kingdom. Add to this the fact that Moses' task was to bring Israel into the promised land and by number 16, they were not going to go into the promised land. They were not going to inherit the land. They were not going to inherit vineyards. There was no inheritance waiting for this generation that came out. Of course, it was not Moses' fault. It was the people's fault in their unbelief. But nonetheless, the truth remains here that Moses led them out of captivity, but Moses was not going to lead them into the promised land. It It was to take the failure of Moses and to rub it into his face Now, unlike those first accusations, these accusations deeply affected Moses, much more than the first set of accusations. And you can see it in in how Moses, uh, you know, reacted to it. In verse 15, we are told this, that Moses was very angry, very angry. In the first response, Moses fell to his face, but in the second response, Moses was very angry. And this is what he said. He said to the Lord, do not respect their offering. You know what this means? This means, Lord, don't listen to them. When they pray, don't answer them. When they worship you, don't receive their worship. You know, and then he goes on and he says, I've not taken one donkey from them, nor have I hurt one of them. Now, this is really very different. And not only was Moses' response different, Moses began to claim things for which he was not accused of. They did not accuse him of theft. They did not accuse him, you know, of hurting them. You know, but instead, he, Moses begins to bring up all these things to God and says, hey, I didn't steal anything. I was fair. It was just to all of them. He began to imagine injury and hurt that was not even being inflicted upon him. And I, I don't know if you realize that this happens to all of us, right? I mean, you know, imagine you and your wife and, you know, uh, sometimes, you know, this happens uh, to me. You know, I ask my wife and say, hey, you know, at this time, can you please make, make sure that I, I wake up, you know, because, you know, at the late night can, and then I have another meeting to go for. Can you please make sure you wake me up by this time? And then she forgets to wake me up, right? I wake up and I'm angry and says, why didn't you wake me up? You don't care for me. You don't support the things I do. You're not, you know, you know, and then it becomes bigger and bigger, right? I mean, she just forgot to wake me up, that's all. Doesn't mean that she doesn't love me, doesn't mean that she doesn't support what I'm doing or anything like that. But we begin to perceive hurt and injury when it was not even perpetrated. And that's because we get angry and we get personal. Amen? And in this backdrop of what is happening, I then now want to consider two things regarding conflict. And I want to talk about conflict because conflict is something every one of us are familiar with. If you're not in some kind of a tension or conflict right now, I guarantee you tomorrow when you get back to the office, it'll happen, okay? It is a constant of life, right? And it's always going to be around us and it's important for us to understand these conflicts and how to deal with them. Sometimes conflicts are fleeting. Just a moment of irritation, and then we reconcile. But sometimes conflict can go so deep that it can last for years. It can split families, separate friends. Amen. And it can become so acrimonious that we harbor a sense of unforgiveness for prolonged periods of our time. And that's why the Bible brings up these conflicts to teach us to understand what conflicts are about and how to resolve them God's way. The first thing I want for us to understand is that there is a purpose 
for conflict. Now, the word conflict in itself um, immediate, immediately conjures all kinds of negative connotations, right? And most of us, we are conflict adverse. We don't want to be in conflict. Sometimes we keep quiet because we just want to avoid any kind of confrontation with people, right? And in many instances, conflicts are bad. They can cause a lot of pain. Hurtful words are spoken, you know, and, and we, we, we damage relationships. We cause disappointments or even loss as a result of these conflicts. But I want to say this, that we need to put on a different lens to see that conflicts are actually essential. They're not necessarily bad. And one of these conflicts that's recorded in the Bible for us that produced great good is found in Acts chapter 15, where there was a conflict over the need for circumcision of the men. And what was happening at this time was the Gentiles were getting saved, but there were men that came into Jerusalem that preached to the people and said, for the Gentile believers, in order for them to get saved, they must first become Jews. They must get circumcised, right? And the dispute was so sharp that to call the whole leadership into Jerusalem, and that's what we call today the Jerusalem Council. They had to hear the different views that were being presented. There were details in each perspective that, you know, that had many great implications. And at this time, they had no New Testament to instruct them. They had the words of Jesus and they had the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, the covenant was established for the men by a sign of circumcision. This dispute was so fundamental, it constituted a foundational aspect of our Christian faith that we take for granted today. Amen? And yet, it was a very sharp a conflict that happened. It wasn't a conflict that was easily resolved overnight, even though it only covered one chapter in the book. But yet, because of the resolution of this conflict, because there was a decision that was made in accordance to truth, what happened is that the gospel exploded into the Gentile world thereafter. Amen? I mean, the thrust of the gospel. Can you imagine if they didn't resolve this conflict today? In every church, there'll be a little booth with someone with a sharp knife. And every time somebody gets saved, every man who gets saved, we send them straight there. And do a little circumcision, okay? Praise God this was resolved. But it was resolved because of a conflict. And you see, there's something about conflicts that when there is a conflict or an argument that's for the sake of truth to discover what God wants, then the result of it is always going to cause an expansion and advancement of God's kingdom. Now, in the case of Korah's rebellion, the intentions of conflict is really quite the opposite. Amen? And I want to take some time to deconstruct this conflict because when, when, when Korah brought this accusation against Moses, there seems to be some merit in his argument because there's something that Korah identified correctly that God intended for the nation of Israel and that was for the nation to become an egalitarian society. He said this, he said, all the congregation is holy. God is in the midst of all His people. There is a certain level of equality that God intended to bring the nation of Israel into. And the truth is this, when God made a covenant with the nation of Israel, He made the covenant not with one man. He made His covenant not with one class of people. He made the covenant not with one tribe or one gender. He made the covenant with everyone in Israel. At Mount Sinai, you've got to understand this, there was no distinction drawn between tribes and between gender. In many other parts of the Bible, sometimes the, God, the, the, the Word of God will bring a distinction between men and women. And because those distinctions were made, we fail to realize that there were many other instances in the Bible whereby there is no distinction made between men and women. And this is an instance in Mount, on Mount Sinai, there was no distinction made. God came, He made a covenant with men and women. Amen. 
And his desire was to dwell in the midst of all his people. He would be their God and they would be his people. And yet in this particular instance, at this point in the history of Israel, it seems to be in direct contradiction to what God intended it to be. There was a high priesthood that was exclusive to the family of Aaron. And when you look at it, the whole power base of Israel at this point of time is concentrated into one little family between Moses and Aaron. And it just doesn't look good, does it? It doesn't look like this is God's intention for the whole nation of Israel, right? But I want to say this, that right throughout the Word of God, God's design has always been that the structures He creates is egalitarian. There is equality. There is an evenness. It's not meant to be deeply hierarchical. It's not meant to be an elite class, right? When you talk about the priesthood in the Old Testament and the kingship in the Old Testament, you've got to realize that they were not God's original design. God's original design was the firstborn of every family would be priest to Him. And the reason he chose the tribe of Levi was because of the adultery with the golden calf. And as a result, he took Levi, the tribe, instead of every firstborn. And when, he, and when Israel wanted a king, God warned them through the prophet Samuel that this was not his ideal for, for them. Amen. So these were not ideals for God. And yet I want to point this out to us, that while Korah was right in deciphering the fact that God wanted an egalitarian society, the issue was this. The issue was that Korah's argument, his motivation behind it was wrong. And we begin to understand what Korah was arguing for when in one of his arguments, Korah said this. He says to Aaron and Moses, he says, why then do you exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord? And this betrayed his true intentions because Korah saw these roles as a means of exaltation. His true intention, you know, was being revealed because while he wasn't really going after equality, but in fact, he was going after the very opposite of equality. He was seeking to become exalted above the rest of Israel because he failed to understand that the job of the Levites was to bless and to serve the nation instead of lording it over them. Amen. And he saw it as a position of exaltation instead of a position to serve, Right? And so the initial impression that Korah gave was that he was arguing on behalf of Israel. In truth, he was actually arguing for himself. The purpose of this conflict was in the end selfish. Instead of an argument for the sake of truth, like the Jerusalem council was meant to be, it became an argument for the sake of personal victory and personal gain. Now, what is the application for us here? What is the, how does this apply to us, right? The, the application for us is that we all have conflicts. But it is important for us to understand why are we in conflict. We need to deep dive into uncovering the purpose of our conflict. Are we fighting for truth or are we fighting for ourselves? And sometimes, actually all times, it is difficult to decipher for what you are fighting for. Because when you get into an argument, many times you begin to nobleize. You make, you make yourself noble. You begin to rationalize your reasons for the conflict. Oh, I'm doing this for the church. I'm doing this for the greater good. I'm doing this for justice. I'm doing this for truth. But the, when you really examine your hearts, right, and, and, and you know, there's always going to be pride. There's going to be selfish ambition, fighting for status, taking the credit, uh, gaining of a position. And these things all begin to surface for us. Amen. So how do we know what is our intention? How do you know what is your intention for arguing? Based on these two chapters, I want to suggest to you a few things to be concerned about. The first thing is this, that when you're in an argument, how do you frame the people who appears to be your opponents? When you're in a conflict, when you're in a tension, how do you begin to perceive those people? How do you begin to speak about them? 
Because if you begin to frame them and vilify them in a negative way, then I want to tell you that you're moving away from an argument for truth, but you're moving towards an argument for self. Right? And this is what they did. They begin to vilify these men. They begin to put on them motivations that were not in their hearts. And the purity in which we look at people will show the purity in ourselves as well. Is that blame instead of responsibility? Because, hey, these men were all to be blamed because they didn't act in faith. And yet in an argument, it is never one-sided. It's all to be blamed. When you're in argument, do you realize your responsibility for the problem that, you're, that we are in at the moment? Or do you fully blame somebody else? Do you take responsibility? What's your language like? Is it accusative? Or is there a sense of mutual responsibility? Finally, is it for verity or for victory? Truth? Or, or is it a question of who is right? And that's not difficult for us to decipher, right? I mean, if, if, you're, if you're not fighting just to be known to be right, then when you see facts present itself, then you're able to say, hey, I was wrong. But the person who's fighting self, for self-victory will never admit the facts that, hey, I'm wrong or I can be wrong, right? And that's another important aspect of understanding your motivation and in knowing your motivation, then it's the purpose of the conflict revealed. You know, I want to suggest this, that sometimes we think to ourselves, oh, the church should have no conflicts at all. We should be absolutely harmonious and totally united. Bah, I don't believe that. <laughs> the lack of conflict in the church will result in a weaker church tomorrow because there's no longer an argument for truth. There's no longer a progression. You see, every time the church has progressed in history, it's because there's something that we argued about and we came to a conclusion that this is truth. We argued over the power of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but we've come to a conclusion that this is from God, amen? And that's propelled the church forward, amen? But the thing about the conflict is it's not meant to be personal. It's not meant to destroy. It's meant to construct. Years ago, you know, um, 21 years ago, I was about to get married to Wendy. And I think it was maybe about three months before our wedding, you know, and I got into a really bad fight, probably the worst fight that we've had in our dating years. And I remember, I, I don't remember why we were fighting, okay? And I'm telling this, I can't remember any reasons for our fights because it's always very trivial, okay? But I do remember we were driving in a little Subaru and we were at Badok, near Badok Interchange, okay? And I was so angry with her. I said to her, when you stop the car now, you stop. I'm done with you. I'm getting out of this car. So she stopped the car. I hop out, you know, and I found my own way. And then for about three weeks, we never talked to each other. We didn't talk to each other, Okay. And then Pastor got a little bit concerned he was, because he's going to conduct the wedding and he didn't know if the <laughs> wedding's going to happen or not. So he hauled the both of us to his house, right? And I remember he sat down and he gave me probably the best piece of marriage advice I've ever heard from Pastor Young. <laughs> Actually, it's the only piece of marriage advice he's ever given me. <laughs> and he said this to me, he says, Lip, you know, you're going to have arguments. This is not the last one you're going to have. There are going to be many more arguments but you have to decide today, is your argument, are your arguments going to break you all apart or is, going to, or is it going to bring you closer together? Are you going to build upon the argument so that every argument teaches you a little bit more about who you're marrying and, and then you learn where, where the boundaries, where do you not cross? What are the words that you don't use? What do you not do to trigger your wife? You know? And I always remember that as, hey, that's a great advice that our arguments are not meant to separate us. It's meant to bring us closer together. Amen. Now, the second thing about arguments and conflicts is that there is a proper way to resolve these conflicts, right? And I want to consider because in these two chapters, 16 and 17, God shows us the wrong way to resolve it, and then He shows us what's the right way to resolve it. 
And you know, and, and you see, what happens is that there is a way to resolve it the wrong way whereby everybody loses. There are situations where a conflict ends up in a state where everyone ends up losing. And in this instance, it was seen in the first judgment that was brought upon Datham and Abiram and his family in which the whole earth opened up and swallowed the two families together directly into hell. Right? And never has this thing ever happened again. And I want you to recall the atmosphere of how this happened. Moses is so angry. He's so angry. He's so upset, right? Because, he's, because the attack has become personal and he begins to take it personally. And the outcome was that Moses petitioned that God would not listen to the prayers of these men. You know, have we ever prayed like this? Have we ever got so angry that we prayed, God, don't listen to these people. Don't answer their prayers, Right? Have we ever taken things so personally and drawn a line between us and them? Now, when you reach an instance like that, right, what happens is that Moses, who was the great intercessor, the one who stood between the gap on Mount Sinai so that God would spare the nation of Israel, now, you know, the great shepherd of the flock, all of a sudden now Moses, instead of standing for the people, he stood against the people in whom he's called to defend. And the one who's supposed to defend begins to accuse and you see, the result of this is that Moses calls for action and judgment on the rebels, and then they all died in one instant. But notice this, it didn't quell the dissent. It didn't cause there to be peace in the camp. Instead, the very next day, the people arose and complained, and they said to Moses, Moses is the one who killed the people of the Lord. And guess what? The anger of God is aroused again, and then 14,700 people died. I think that's a poor resolution to the problem, to the conflict. Right? Thousands, tens of thousands of people died as a result of this means of resolution of conflict. You see, we can look at this and we say, yeah, the people asked for it, who wants them to complain, right? Yet, if you really think about it, in the New Testament, when Jesus comes aboard on, on these things, He refuses to call down fire on those people who have come against Him. It's a complete different spirit. And sometimes we think to ourselves, you know, what's the big deal? Now, I want to recommend, there's a great... Um, YouTube series called Chosen, right? And it's the story of Christ, you know? And I, I remember watching this part, right? And how the people came and cursed the Lord, spit at Him. Because I'm telling you, James and John, they, they, they didn't just anyhow call down fire. I mean, they were so angry. They were so angry because the people treated Jesus so bad. And yet Jesus said, you don't know what spirit you're of. There's something about Christ that calls for mercy instead of destruction. Now, here's the application. When you're in conflict with someone else, the moment you begin to seek the destruction of the person, you are going to end up in a lose-lose situation. Amen? You know, I like the driving examples because it happens to me a lot, right? And people now cut me, you know, and I used to like, Lord, judge them, you know? Now I don't, I don't. I'm a little bit more sanctified, I don't. But you know what I think in my mind? Yeah, these people, the way they drive, sooner or later, sure get into accident one. That's what I think. That's what I would say. And in those words of death that we speak over people, the curses that we declare over people, those are the very things that opens up a hole and a gap in our lives. It opens up a door because we are not speaking life. But, but you see, the very next thing is that there is a proper way to resolve this 
conflict and it's a win-win solution. And this is where the Lord steps in because he saw that this didn't quell. Moses' method didn't quell the descent. So he steps in and he says to the 12 tribes, he said, everybody bring a rod. We'll put it in the tent of meetings. The next day, the one I, I will show whom I've chosen. The next morning they come and Aaron's rod buds and it flowers and it's an almond flower, an almond fruit, a rod that is dead a rod that has no more life in it. There's no way that life is a demonstration of resurrection power. It is to cause life to come where there has been death. You see, when you look at conflicts, conflicts bring death. But if we want our conflicts to be constructive, then this is the pattern that the Lord brings to us. It's a power instead of causing death to bring life. And you've got to look, it's an almond tree and an almond flower that buds, right? And the, the richness of the significance in the Word of God concerning almonds is, you know, replete throughout the Word of God. So let me give you these um, examples or these significances of the almond, okay? In the old, you know, in the Old Testament, the understanding is this. Amongst all the trees, the almond tree is the first to bloom after winter. They are known to be the first ones to flower. And it's a signal of the end of winter and the onset of spring where there was once hibernation, where there was once dormancy and what is quiescent, there is now the budding of fresh life. And when it comes to our conflicts that can be destructive and devastating, instead of using harsh words and acting rudely that brings death, we need to learn how to speak life instead. Amen. We need to look at the situation and when you talk to your wife, when you talk to your spouse in an argument, stop using the word always. You're always like that. And by saying that, we're condemning them never to be able to change. You're condemning them into a state where they are, and in that, you're condemning your relationship into that state. You've got to learn to use words that speaks life instead of speaking death. And that's what this means. You know, Jeremiah 1 verse 11 to 12, the prophet has a vision and he sees an almond uh, a branch that is flowering. And the Lord says, I'm watching over my word to fulfill it. That word watching, it means that God is watching actively. He's looking at it. It's not like he puts it on a shelf and then he comes back again. It means that he's constantly looking at it to perform. Sometimes we get into conflicts because we are struggling for our own sense of significance. And yet God says, I'm the one who made you. I'm the one who made a promise to you. I am actively watching over my promises to perform it. God is the one. Stop looking at your own devices. Look at God to be the one that will bring fruition into your life. Amen. And finally, the almond flowers, you know, they sit on the menorah, on, on, on those nine candles, on the candlestick with its nine uh, candles. And that's the light that comes into the holy place. This is contrasted to the outer courts where the light comes from a natural means from the sun. And there is a buzz in the outer court. There are people around, there is sound. But in the holy place, there is no sound. It's enclosed, it's just you and the Lord. And what happens when we're in a conflict and we're in the outer courts, then there's all these voices that are going on. There's all these emotions and tension that's going in us. We're looking at the natural situation with natural light. But the Lord says, come into the holy place. Look with my light the light that sits upon those blossoms, those almond blossoms, because I want to give you fresh light. You see, when we look with our own eyes, we will oftentimes attribute things to people that are not there. We begin to think people are against us for this. People didn't greet us. People didn't say, uh, you know, if someone didn't walk by you and didn't smile, and you think, hey, the person's against me. And just seeing through natural light, and God wants to come in this, you know, we need to come aside to the Lord, and then He'll speak to us and put things into proper perspective for us. Amen. And then we can resolve those conflicts. Then we can be non, you know, we can see how those conflicts can be resolved in a way in which produces life. Amen. 
I want to bring this uh, to a close, okay? And I want to end off, of course, uh, by coming to the Lord's table because it's so significant, right, that then Jesus, you know, in the upper room as he's instituting, you know, the Lord's table, and the Bible reminds us over and over again that it is in the midst of betrayal that God gives us the communion table. The communion table was not given when things were perfect. Jesus was going to be betrayed. Jesus was being betrayed. He was about to suffer the greatest things. And yet on the cross, on that dead piece of wood, lay Christ and he said those words that gave life, Lord, forgive them because they do not know what they're doing. And therefore, we are the recipients of the grace of God. I want to encourage us today as we consider these things because I really believe that all of us are in some form of conflict or another. Amen? And some of these conflicts may not be in our face, but they're brewing inside of us. There's some tension. Are there people that, hmm, you're just not going to talk to? It's a past conflict, but it's still brewing. It's still simmering inside of you. Are there things that have happened? Or is there some contention that's coming up at the workplace or in your family? with your spouse? What is it that there are these conflicts that continue to brew in our lives? And I want to ask you to bring those conflicts today to the Lord's table as we celebrate communion, to know that there is grace enough for us and to know that conflicts don't have to destroy. But when there is an argument for truth, it can always advance the kingdom of God. Amen? Let's prepare our hearts, shall we? And I, wanna, I, want, uh, I want us to just maybe take some time and consider this and just pause for a moment and wonder if there's anything in our hearts that we have not yet resolved with our brothers and sisters. Amen. Is there anything that we have not resolved? Maybe something, you know, that we're angry about from the past, something that's been done to us, an injustice. Maybe there's an argument. Maybe there's something going on in the office. I don't know what it is, but would you bring those things before the Lord as we come to His table? Amen. I want to ask you to prepare the elements. If you have not yet received a set of the elements, you can raise your hands. The ushers will come and they'll serve you with a set of the bread and the cup. Amen. And let's prepare our hearts to come before the Lord as we pray. Father, we thank You, Lord, that You have made provision for everything. Lord, we thank You, O Lord, that You did not stay in heaven, but You came down and you took on the form of men. You laid aside your glory, your power, your majesty, O oh Lord. And Lord, that you were tempted in every way and yet you were without sin, Lord. And it is in that measure, Lord, that you gave us the bread and the wine, Lord. Of all that you have done, Lord, so that we may walk in victory in this life, Lord. So that we may overcome all things just as you overcame all things, Lord. Father, we recognize and acknowledge that we are imperfect. We recognize, O oh Lord, and acknowledge, Lord, there are flaws in us, O oh God. But we thank you that you do not reject us because of those flaws, but all the more do you call us, Lord, to draw near to you, Lord. And we humbly come before you, Lord. We ask that you bless this day, the bread and the cup, Lord, and that as we look to it and appropriate it by faith, O oh God, your grace, your healing, your strength, Lord, may be appropriated to us as we look to you, Lord. Bless these elements. We ask this in Jesus' name and everybody say... Amen. You've just listened to a production of Cornerstone Community Church. Please note that all unauthorized reproduction, distribution, or sale of the recording is prohibited. For permission to reproduce or distribute the sermon, please write into mail at cscc.org.sg. We hope that you have been blessed.